You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. And uh, if the county shows up, they can join us for church. How about that? John chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me just say a couple of things to you, uh, just by way of reminder. Um, that, that message that we just sang about, we actually carry with us every day. You guys realize that, right? Um, it's a message that we're to proclaim. And so uh, not only are we going through the book of John in order to uh, make sure that message is proclaimed, heard, and we do it, right? We are having an evangelism conference this coming up Thursday night, uh, so I encourage you to be here and be a part of that. Um, and we've got people that are bringing uh, food, so you don't even have to worry about uh, making dinner, and so come and be a part of it. Join us for that. Uh, all of the information is there in your worship guide, and uh, Ted Trailer is going to be with us. Looking forward to uh, seeing uh, Pastor, Tr- Pastor Ted um, uh, to be here with us. On Thursday night. Along with that, make sure that you keep uh, keep abreast of what's going on in the bulletin. We've got a schedule change that's coming up. I shared with you last week. We won't take the time to unpack that completely again. Uh, but all of the information on what the schedule looks like moving forward is there in your uh, worship guide. So I want to encourage you to stay up to speed on that. Well, John chapter 5, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Over the last several weeks, we've spent a lot of time together talking about what it means to believe, to believe. And I shared with you the last couple of weeks that there are two things that we're going to begin to see come up again and again, especially with regard to this idea of believing. We're going to see the rising fascination with who Jesus is. More and more people hearing of his miracles, more and more people hearing of his teaching and wanting to come and see what life is all about when it comes to following this man, Jesus. But at the same time, we're going to see rising opposition to Jesus. He is not only going to be the the talk of the town, he's also going to be the talk of the town in a negative way. Everyone's going to want to put Jesus out of his ministry and ultimately they're going to seek to kill him. At at times, this fascination with Jesus is going to show us the nature of belief because we're going to see just how short-sighted, just how shallow some of the belief is that we're seeing. In reality, only living out what Jesus has already described, knowing what was in their hearts. He knows the hearts of men. But the rising opposition to Jesus is actually going to do more to show us the unbelief that we see in this particular gospel. So as this religious crowd opposes Jesus, that opposition becomes more and more heated. The depth of their unbelief becomes more and more clear. And the evidences of that and the characteristics of what unbelief looks like 
will begin to manifest themselves more and more clearly. And so as a result, we will have beside what it means to believe, we will have beside it what it means to not believe. And sometimes it's more helpful, it is helpful to understand what something is if we understand what it is not, right? To, to understand what a hurricane is, sometimes you have to be there and understand what you're without, right? So to understand what is not helps us to understand what is, namely in the context of belief. And so this is really helpful in our modern context as we think about following Jesus to get a picture of what unbelief looks like. Why? Because there's a lot of things today that are masquerading as belief in Jesus. And we need to be very clear biblically about what it means to believe, but we must call a spade a spade. And what it means to not believe needs to be clear so that we're not led astray, so that we might understand in the world around us who really is a Christian based on their own profession according to biblical standards. And we need to know what it means to be a Christian ourselves. So what we're going to look at this morning is the nature of unbelief and see this come up again and again and hopefully put some meat on these bones as we walk through this gospel over the coming weeks and months. So if you found your place, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we look to John chapter five, the tail end, finishing it up, beginning at verse thirty one. Jesus said, if I bear, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
Father, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. Where perhaps even some of the most subtle forms of unbelief have crept under the radar and we have embraced them and begun to even believe them ourselves as, in, as, as right responses to the gospel. And so I pray that in the unbelief of these Pharisees that you would remind us of what it really means to believe. That you would dig out all of those false beliefs. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's adopted a false belief and maybe even at this very moment believes themselves to be a Christian based on a wrong response to the gospel. And so I pray, God, that you would make it plain and clear that you would call all who are here to rightly believe in the one and true Christ. And that today, those who do not know Christ will be saved and that you would equip us not only to be bigger worshipers over what you've done in our heart and our life, but God, that we would take this message to an unbelieving world so that they might hear the gospel and by your spirit you would draw them to salvation. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. So, let's just take a snapshot, if you would, of where we've been. Because chapter 5 is rather lengthy and we've broken it up into a couple of different pieces so far. So let me just remind you that the Gospel of John is an ongoing narrative. Anytime you come to a Gospel, it is not just to simply read several stories that have been put together in order that you might read individual stories, kind of like when you were in Sunday school as a kid. The entire Gospel is put together in a specific way in order that we might come to a specific place. Namely, for John, it's to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so this is an ongoing narrative, even though it's a different phase of this story. And together in this Gospel, all of these narratives come together to give us this picture of the divinity of Christ. That He is, in fact, God in human flesh. So here's the picture. John chapter 5. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And during the Feast of the Jews, we don't know which one, He arrives at the Pool of Bethesda and in the Temple of Asclepius where all of those invalids had come. Remember, all the multitude of people gathering together, gathering so that they might be healed, and yet healing does not come. And it's against that backdrop that there is a man who's been an invalid for 38 years, probably spending a lot of his time, maybe all 38 years at the pool, hoping to find healing. And the irony, of course, is that despite the lack of healing, the healing that's not coming, he keeps coming back again and again and again. We, we all know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, right? This is what the man is doing. Well, the man's faith in Christ doesn't become real, but nonetheless, Jesus in that moment says to the man, get up and walk, and he does, and he's healed. In just an instant, after 38 years of not having received healing from a pagan temple, and once healed, he leaves the pagan temple and encounters the Jews. If you're familiar with the geography at all, you, you know that he's right here in the shadow of the Temple Mount. It's very possible that he literally has just run across the Temple Mount, overjoyed that he's been healed, and he's carrying his bed, 
and the Jews see and he is violating the Sabbath. Now, we've already seen that that that's not a true violation, right? This is according to man's standard. And yet he violates the Sabbath. That's where the objection begins. And yet their objection becomes all the more plain in verse 18 when we find out what their real problem with Jesus was. I'll read it to you again. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, this is speaking of Jesus, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what John is doing is he's setting us up for this aggressive fight that only begins now, but is this shift in, in, in kind of movement in the whole gospel where it's this war that's beginning to be waged between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, the Son of God. Now, bear in mind, these are the most religious leaders of the day. Pharisees, Sadducees, these are the men who were the religious example. If you're going to find real faith in God anywhere, you're going to find it here among these men, at least presumably so. And yet, what do we find? We find that despite all of the evidence pointing to the reality of who Jesus is, up to and including the fact that He just healed this man, what, what false religion could not do, Jesus does. We find, right in the middle of this conversation, a very clear picture of unbelief. In fact, verse 28, Jesus says to them, don't marvel at these things. The idea of marveling is is shock and amazement as if they were taken off guard that Jesus could do something like this. In other words, they did not know Him to be or believe Him to be the One who He was claiming. And it only actually made them angry, not worshipful. Now what Jesus does here in our text is He sets this rejection... The rejection of the Pharisees, he sets it against a backdrop, if you will, of a fourfold witness. Four different people that are confirming that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, verse 30 from last week that we saw last week, it kind of sets us up for that. So read that with me. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. He's saying... I can't do it on my own. There's something else that's in concert with what I'm doing. He says, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just just because I seek out not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I can do nothing on my own. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, it may seem on the surface that Jesus is saying, I don't have the ability to do things on my own, as if Jesus somehow needed something else in order to carry out what he was doing. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is it's impossible to divorce me doing something from my father doing something. And then even more than that, there is this concert of witnesses that are all saying the same thing about me. I, I cannot escape that reality. Now, Jesus' claims about him, Himself are, of course, true. But notice how He says this. If I alone bear witness about Myself, My testimony is not true. 
Of course it's true. What is Jesus saying? He says, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What Jesus is doing is he's he's appealing to their own religious system, their way of verifying evidence. You know, what we do in a court of law in order to verify something's true. What do we do? We call witnesses, right? We call witnesses, we hear stories, we hear testimonies. The Old Testament actually called them in Numbers chapter 35, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, called them to get two or three witnesses to verify something. Well, Jesus knows in this conversation that the Pharisees believe that. So he says, look at the evidence. Consider the evidence. Listen to the witnesses. And he calls into question four different witnesses in order to verify his identity. He calls John the Baptist. So that's in verse uh, 33, chapter 5, verse 33. He calls himself as a witness, namely his works. See what I'm doing. Look at the healing. Look at all of the ministry that I'm doing around. See what people are saying. Hear my words. Confirm these things. He calls God the Father as His witness in verse 36. And then He calls the law of Moses into witness in verse 45. So a fourfold witness. These are not, this is not four different voices. These are one voice all saying the same thing. So before they are ever introduced separately, Jesus reminds his listeners that he had already said to them that these are going to be a joint testimony. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. In other words, the biblical witness concerning Jesus is absolutely true because of these witnesses. It's absolutely true. And if it's true, then it warrants real belief. And what we're going to see in these Pharisees is that it's a false belief. It's unbelief. But Jesus evidence or or Jesus witness about himself is true and it warrants real belief. That's essentially what Jesus is saying in verses 31 and 32. My witness is not the only one. There's three more. And what I've said is true, therefore you must believe it. The same must be applied ultimately to all people. The biblical record concerning Jesus is absolutely true. had a conversation just this week with an unbeliever, and the objection to the Gospel was something that you've probably heard before, and that is, the Bible was written by man. That it's subject to error, it's subject to mistakes, that it's a, a man's opinion. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure what everybody says about Him is, is true. And the Bible is in that category. But not if you're really going to believe in Jesus. Because Jesus here makes the claim that, that the Bible itself, God the Father, even those who came before as prophets, all agree together on the same body of truth. The irony is, though, despite all of the witness, they still don't believe. Even though Jesus cites their own agreed-upon standard, they say, yeah, we're going to believe that, but, but th- this is the irony. 
We're going to believe that, that we've got to have two or three witnesses. We're going to believe the Old Testament. But when you call it into question, we don't believe it anymore. We, we somehow can abandon our own convictions in order to fit our preferences of the moment. And Jesus calls their bluff. By every popular measure and standard of the day, what is seen as religious is a sham. It was only superficial. And their belief was shown to be false. So here's what happens. Jesus calls these four witnesses and then woven in with these four witnesses, He shows them plainly all of the ways that their belief is false. And if we're honest, some of these same kinds of unbelief masquerade themselves in the church and in the culture as belief today. Incredibly helpful text. So in our faith movement today, is it really faith? Let's look at it. Number one, the first witness is the testimony of John. And with the testimony of John, we see the danger of emotionalism. Emotionalism. Look at verse 33 with me. Jesus says, you sent John. And by the way, his calling forth John, we know that it's John the Baptist because of what Jesus or what, what John, the, the gospel writer, has already said about John being a witness. Right. So you sent John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. So he wants to make plain Jesus identity. Listen to this carefully. Jesus identity does not rest on how we feel or what we think about him. Jesus' identity is set in stone because of who He claims to be, based purely upon His authoritative Word. He is unchanging. His character remains the same. Jesus is the Son of the living God, no matter how we feel about the situation. So He says, not that I receive, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Very intentionally, He wants them to be saved. He wants them to hear all of these witnesses so that in hearing this evidence, they might trust in Christ as well. So he calls it to account. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp. And listen to what he says about them. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. What light? The light that shines in order that all might see Christ. Well, how do we know that? You go all the way back to chapter 1. We've been here before. John the Baptist, his role is defined for us. So, hold your place. Go back to John chapter 1. And you might, in the margin of your Bible in John chapter 5, you might write John chapter 1 and maybe these verses so that you know what we're getting at here. John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And what was John's role? Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So John is giving light to the light who is Christ. We know that because that all men that or that all might believe through him. And verse 8 says he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. 
He is what Matthew 5 talks about when it says that we are a light on a hill shining forth. We're shining the light of Christ. And John is doing the very same thing. He has received the light of Christ, the truth of the gospel that shines into the sinful darkness of the world. And he he shines that light forth in such a way that others might hear. And this is what he did. Chapter 1, verse 32. John bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit ascend like Descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him and I myself did not know him. But he he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit and descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And verse 34 says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. So when you get over to chapter five. What happens is Jesus reintroduces the witness. And it's a witness that not only we should be familiar with in the context of the entire gospel, having been through this far, this far. But we should also or the the Pharisees themselves would also be familiar with what was happening. Maybe you missed this when we were in chapter one. You're still there. Chapter one and verse Uh, 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Over in chapter 5, if you remember, whenever the one is healed, they want to know who is the man that healed you, right? There is this kind of Search for who are these people that are making such waves and it all happens to land on Jesus in the same way that they want to know who Jesus is. They wanted to know who John was and what Jesus says here in John chapter five is not only did they want to know who he was. Or did they want to know who he was? He, he makes plain that they were willing to rejoice in what he said, Right. Verse 35, go over to back to John chapter 5, verse 35. It says he was a burning and shining lamp. They're okay with that. Because the second part of that verse says, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They, they listened to him for a while. Where, where does the rejection come? They listened to John willingly for a while. They heard what he had to say and and presumably rejoicing, therefore believing about what he's saying. He's he's announcing the Messiah. Why would any Jew reject that? Right. It's the thing they've been waiting for forever. So the Messiah is coming and John says, yes, he's coming and they rejoice in this. But watch this now. When the Messiah actually came, they say, we don't want any part of that. They rejoice for a while, but whenever they see who Jesus really is, what He demands, the kinds of things that are going to happen in following Christ, they don't want any part of it anymore. Because of the loss of power, the loss of position, the loss of whatever it is that they're going to lose, they just simply don't want it. And it is nothing more than a picture of emotionalism that happens in a moment when we first get a glance at Jesus 
But when we really come up side by side with who He is, it's then, whether, it's then that we decide whether we're going to really follow Him or not. And it is dangerously close to the same kinds of things that we do in our culture today when we initially rejoice in who Jesus is. But if you measure our lives years down the line, they look nothing like what we initially rejoiced in because we've come to terms with who Jesus really is. Let me just place my finger on it this morning. And there are many expressions of what this could look like. But I just had this conversation this week with a mother of a child who has been praying for their child for years to return to faith in Christ. And the conversation went essentially like this. Is, is my child ready to make a change in their life? Are they ready to turn their life back to Jesus? And, and I simply said, after having the conversation, I, I don't know that, they're, that they've been born again yet. But they're on the, hopefully the right path, praying for this particular person that they will come to faith in Jesus. And here was the statement. Well, they accepted Christ when they were so young. I'm just praying they'll come back. Now, I know this person personally. And there is no evidence of belief in Christ. In fact, there's not even an acceptance of the truths of Christianity. But this mother is clinging to a moment when a prayer was said and emotions were high and a commitment was made and yet there was never ever a follow through in following Jesus. Can I tell you, church, that emotionalism is not Christianity. Making a profession without ever actually having a change of life may be the response to a moment where we had a, had a tear shed over the reality of someone dying for us, but were we really willing to submit ourselves fully to Christ? I'm not saying that childhood professions are all false. But what I'm saying is that if we're not careful, we will fall into the trap of just like these Pharisees, we're willing to rejoice we like the things of Christianity, but whenever we get to the reality of what Christianity is about and who Jesus is, we turn away. That's not Christianity. It's false belief. And so, we've got to be careful as we look to this first witness that we do not fall into the trap of mere emotionalism. Second, the testimony of Jesus and the danger of skepticism. The testimony of Jesus and the danger of skepticism. Verse 36. Jesus says not only the testimony of John, look at my own testimony. The testimony that I have, verse 36, is greater than that of John. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In other words, Jesus' testimony about Himself and what He's doing becomes self-evident in such a way that it really doesn't need any witness, although He's humoring them. It doesn't need any witness at all. 
I don't know about you, but a man rises from the dead. This probably warrants my attention. Amen. A man heals somebody, raises somebody else from the dead, heals the blind, heals this invalid. Certainly it warrants me wondering what's going on. I don't know any of us that have done that. We can't even figure out COVID. (laughs) And Jesus heals a man after 38 years by speaking to him. Jesus and his works, the word there is, they are always references to the signs and wonders Miracles that he's doing in particular in John, they are more signs than they are miracles. What John wants to see is that all of these miracles actually point to a specific thing about Jesus, who he is or what he fulfills. And in every way, Jesus is saying all the signs that I'm doing are enough. The works were never intended to be ends in and of themselves. Like you receiving healing, Mr. Invalid was not just so that you would be healed, but so that you might come to faith in Christ and the other lepers who were bowing to this false god would see who the one who is the healer. And they would be saved. They were always intended to point to something else. And the irony is, here are these, here are these Pharisees. And I laugh because I probably would be in the same category. Here are these religious leaders. And the man has just been healed and he's running across town leaping for joy. And what happens? You can't do that. (laughs) How bogus is that? Come on, rejoice with this man that he's been healed. And instead, instead, they're more concerned that he's breaking their laws. And they're unwilling to believe who Jesus is, even though right there on the spot, They don't believe his works that he's doing. The danger. The danger is skepticism. To look at the works of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, and to somehow come up with a reason why it can't be true. To begin at this posture of, I'm not going to accept what you're doing no matter what you do. To to never really have enough evidence To demonstrate the truth of something. Another definition, if you will, of skepticism might be willful blindness. Always believing what is not true. The significance today is how often we approach the subject of the gospel with willful blindness. Always needing more evidence for the existence of God or for the goodness of God or for the the resurrection of Jesus. No matter how much is placed before us, no matter how much evidence is there, it's never enough. We're always more willing to believe a lie than we are the truth, even though it's completely self-evident. We're claiming to be rational beings, but in reality, we are irrational. We are what Timothy describes, or Paul describes to Timothy, as people who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. The one who's always ignoring all the evidence that's there right before them. And instead of being rational, what we're doing is rationalizing. We start with a position 
And we want to somehow come up with evidence for that position, whatever it is. This is exactly what the Pharisees are are doing. And the great danger is for us to take an endless journey down the evidence path for the existence of God or for whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And you need to know that that path is a dead-end street. It's a dead-end street not because there's not sufficient evidence. It's a dead-end street because the evidence is plain and we're unwilling to receive it. How do I know that? Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's not they didn't know the truth, they suppressed the truth. And this is who we are all by nature. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And He's not just describing some people, He's describing all people. How? Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Fact is, you cannot deny the evidence. What must happen is a person must be born again before they're ever going to receive what is so plainly true about God. And this is the argument. It is faith. It is faith. There is a third witness. Not only the testimony of John and the testimony of Jesus Himself, but the testimony of the Father. And in the testimony of the Father, we see the danger of intellectualism or kind of the sub part of this egotism. Intellectualism and egotism. Verse 37 says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. So who is the witness? The witness is the Father. And Jesus says that there's two problems with your receiving this witness. Admittedly, one of those is the fact that you've never seen him and you've never heard him. Now, they've heard stories about the burning bush. They've heard all of those things. But God has not spoken, remember, for at least 400 years, well beyond the lifetime of these Pharisees. So he has never been heard. He's never been seen by these men. And so that is perhaps a weakness of this witness and yet and yet the primary reason is not the fact that he's not been seen or not been heard the primary reason is verse 38 he says and you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe listen to how that's crafted put together his words not abiding in you and that's the evidence that you do not believe that's the nature of your unbelief it's not that you don't know the word it's not abiding in you It's rejected. You do not have His Word living in you. And He'll go on in John chapter 15, and we'll get there eventually. In John chapter 15, He will go on to describe what it means for the Word to abide in us. And you know this well. I am the vine. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now watch this. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
So he says, something's happened. My word has, has indwelt you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. He goes on to say toward the end of that passage that not only does it bear fruit, it produces obedience. That's the fruit he's describing. So he's saying to these Pharisees, oh, you know the word, but it's not producing anything in you. The abiding word of Jesus ultimately produces a fruitful life, a life of obedience to Christ. And it's more than merely acquiring knowledge. And what is happening for these Pharisees is they gain a lot of knowledge about God, but nothing's changing in their life. And this is not belief. Verse 43 I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In other words, you don't even recognize that I'm the one the Word has been describing. And yet, you receive one another and you puff one another up with all that you know. You don't seek the glory of God, you seek the glory of one another. That's the egotism part. It's a man-centered intellectualism that's empty of any kind of real spiritual life. How much... We know how good we look, and then we call it faith. Isn't the church so incredibly guilty here of putting on a show, man-centeredism, and you could put a whole lot of things in that category, some more subtle than others. We're puffed up about how much knowledge or how much doctrine we know and we argue to no end about what is true and what's not. We were talking about this this morning, your position on when Christ comes back, and we want to we want to beat that till we're blue in the face, and then we just forget that Jesus is actually going to come back. But we know how it's going to happen. The church is in danger of falling into self-help strategies where man becomes the center and it's just merely puffing up ourselves, self-promotion, Church becomes a social club often. Danger of intellectualism and egotism. And there's one more. One more. One more witness. It's the testimony of Moses. And the danger of legalism slash traditionalism. And its shape there in the New Testament is very similar to its shape now. But notice verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. And then Jesus gives the one-two punch. He says, oh no, I'm not going to accuse you. Moses is already doing it. And what he knows is that there are many in the Jewish faith who are beginning to put their hope in Moses. And Moses was somehow a mediator between them and God. Right? He was somehow pleading their case. So they set their hope in Moses. Jesus is the one who is that hope. But what he's saying to them is, if you choose that mediator, know this, he's already accusing you before God because not one of you has fulfilled the law of Moses. That's what he says. How are they not doing it? Verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Well, what is that witness? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 31 or, uh, verse 19, there is this farewell song of Moses that points to one who is coming who is greater. There is all kinds of pictures in the, in the Torah that point to Jesus. But I think the picture is as a whole. Because remember their complaint, their argument is that this man had violated the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying is the very thing you're accusing him of. 
is what you yourselves are doing. You have rejected the law of Moses because you have rejected me. And certainly places like Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall, it is to him you shall listen. And they didn't. Legalism. The ability to set up a whole bunch of laws and follow those things without ever really obeying the spirit of the law. Law without the lawgiver, in other words. Adding to it a list of your own restrictions in order that you might hold captive those around you and make yourself feel better about yourself. You might put it in the category of traditionalism today. Began with the Catholic Church whenever the Catholic Church said you've got to follow all of these lists of things. You've got to do all of these things according to the church. All of these indulgences you've got to pay in order to be right with the church so that you're right with God. Never did God impose those things on us. We purely we are, are, are to only follow His Word. He is our sole source of authority and the only one whom we must please. And at the end of the day, no matter what tradition we impose on man, What legal requirement we impose on man, if it is not according to God's word, it is not belief, it's not faith. And so much of it today, even in Protestantism. And I fear oftentimes that what we masquerade as belief is the very reason why we have so many who profess Christ and begin a walk with Christ and then they get get to know the church and they don't want anything to do with it. Why? Because we've imposed so much more on Christianity besides what is actually Christian. We must proclaim the gospel. And it is not a gospel of legalism. It is a gospel of grace. So, the question we must all ask is, do we find ourselves in any one of these four to five categories? Emotionalism, skepticism, Intellectualism, egotism, legalism or traditionalism. Belief is deeply rooted in the truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died for us and rose again. And with that comes exuberant emotion, but it is not emotion by itself. It is confidence that believes in the self-evident person of Christ and doesn't begin with a posture of skepticism, but rather humble submission to the gospel. It is the word of God abiding in our hearts so that we come to know what it says and love what it says, and it produces ultimately obedience in our life. It is a life surrendered to the glory of God over and against every other pursuit of self. We lay our lives down. We die at the foot of the cross. It is a real love-fueled obedience to the person of Jesus rather than conforming to the rules of a religious system. You see, the biblical witness concerning Jesus is absolutely true. And it warrants real belief in Him. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Just as these Pharisees encountered Jesus and had to decide for themselves whether they were going to believe who He was. You must also, I must also today, 
decide for ourselves whether we're going to believe in who Jesus is. And not some definition of faith that we give it, but rather biblical faith as Jesus defined it. Have you ever come to really know Christ as Lord and Savior? You need to know this morning that Jesus died the death that you deserve in your place. He died for a sinner. A sinner like you, a sinner like me, all of us in need of a Savior. And today, if you would turn from your sin and believe that Jesus Christ was enough to satisfy your sin debt before God, a death you could never pay, a hell you could never endure here. Jesus endured so that you might be set free for all of eternity. If you would trust Him today by faith. So in just a few moments, we're going to stand. The altar is going to be open. We want to invite you to come right where you are. Step out of the place where you'll be standing. Come to this altar. Pastor, today, will you help me? I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I want to believe. Today we'll share with you what the Bible says about how you can believe and trust in Christ. But you've got to give it all up right now. Your whole life to Christ. Everything that you are. To everything that you know of Him in this moment. Others of you may be here in this room. There's other decisions that need to be made. We want to invite you to come. The altar will be open. Maybe you just want to come and pray. Spend some time at this altar. You're welcome to come this morning. Follow the Lord as He leads you this morning. Let's stand together all across the room. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would help us to respond to You in faith as You define it. In Jesus' name, Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www southwidebaptist.com We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.